Thank you, Brother Dale. Let's uh, turn to the book of Psalms again in, uh, what is it, 102? And let's uh, take a look at this. And uh, we're going to go back to verse 1 and read uh, all of our verses tonight, starting at verse 1, just so we don't forget and we keep everything uh, connected together. And we're talking about the sad consequences of rejecting God's warnings. Okay, now when I say that, I don't know that this psalmist did that. But I do know that the nation he lived in did that. As we said last week, this psalm is thought by most scholars to be one of the psalms written during the time of the exile. Now we don't know if he was going to Babylon, in Babylon, or maybe he was part of the remnant that went back to Jerusalem and saw all the, the devastation and the ruins. But it is a tough, tough, tough time. And uh, if this, and we're right about this, there's no uh, personal sin that is mentioned here where God is calling out this guy and saying, this is why this is happening. I think, rather, he's living in a nation under the judgment of God. I want to tell you something. It stinks when you have to suffer for sins you didn't commit. It stinks whenever other people, like maybe in your family, maybe you've had a husband or maybe you had a wife that they got involved in immorality or something like that, and now you're hurting and you're having to go through a divorce uh, or something like that or have gone through it, and it really wasn't your fault. You really weren't looking for that. And you go, man, why is this happening to me? I didn't do anything. And I think about in our nation. We just got through going through Pride Month. Can you think of a worse name to name a month? Pride goes before what? Destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. Now, so God brings judgment down on our nation. And I look at that and go, why am I suffering? I didn't do any of that. It's hard to handle that sometimes. And, uh, but the fact is, we're a part of a nation. We're a part of family uh, we're a part of a church, we're a part of groups like that, where when people do things that are wrong, it seems like all of us have to suffer at least some for that. I think that's where this guy is. And I think that's why it seems to be hitting him so hard. Lord, you don't even seem to be listening. You seem to have turned your face away. Listen to me and answer speedily. We are desperate in this situation. And we looked at his emotional state last week. So... I poked myself in the eye with my glasses there. Uh, I thought of 2 Chronicles 35, 16. What was the nation of Israel like? We, we tend to think of them as all being holy and walking with God and seeing miracles and worshiping and going to the temple and doing all of their feasts. But listen to this, 2 Chronicles 35, 16. But they mocked God's messengers, that would be the prophets, despised his words, that means they just didn't care, they just took them lightly, and scoffed at his prophets, how long? Until the wrath of the Lord was aroused against his people. Those are two sad words, against his people. And there was no remedy. Folks, there comes a time when God says, enough, that's it. And uh, you can look in Bible times and you can also look through other books of history that are written after the Bible. And you can see that when nations fall, everybody suffers, even the good people, even the good guys, even the Christians, even the people that try to do what's right. Everybody suffers. P 
people in uh, Nazi Germany would be taken into concentration camps who were actually trying to hide and save Jewish lives like Corey Ten Boom and her family and they end up going into concentration camps and suffering like everybody else this is the way it is on earth you say well why would that happen why do good people suffer okay number one remember your theology and your doctrine there are no good people not even us there are no good people so we all deserve to some degree our suffering because we've all participated in sin in one way or another and then secondly when you uh, think about that situation consider the fact that uh, God puts his people sovereignly in the places where he wants them to be and he guides them and empowers them because that's when our testimony speaks the loudest when everything's going great our testimony seems to whisper when things are not going well and we still hold on and cling to the old rugged cross our testimony and our faith it screams out and then another thing to think about is this. There's only one person who has ever lived a perfect life, and that would be the Lord Jesus. And look how he suffered. And look at the betrayal that he went through. And look at how he took the wrath of God in our place. And so uh, if he suffers, then why shouldn't we? Because there's none good but God. Now, this psalmist, going through all of this, it's obvious he is really, really, really hurting. Now, remember, it's believed that this psalm was written around the time of the exile. And so uh, what we don't know is where the psalmist was. We don't know who he is, and we don't know where he was exactly. So, if he is on his way to Babylon, can you imagine how the, those exiles were treated? You don't tend to treat those people just extremely well. And uh, maybe the lash of the whip and being chained and... Uh, being forced to walk and march further than you wanted to go? I don't know. And uh, maybe it happened after he's in Babylon. And maybe this is a situation where he is uh, thinking about what Jerusalem was like. Maybe he's thinking what it was like to be with his family and on feast days. Maybe he writes this around Passover or something. He's imagining what all the family used to do at Passover, but now they're all gone and he's in a foreign land. Maybe he's thinking about uh, any number of different things and just depressed as he uh, goes through this. Well, maybe he's at the tail end of the exile. It's been 70 years. And you remember when you read in the book of Nehemiah how Nehemiah heard what was going on in Jerusalem, how the gates were torn down and the enemies were coming in and out like terrorists and how bad it was. And it burdened him down so much that the king even noticed it. That's a dangerous thing when you're the cupbearer of the king. you got to be happy all the time. But he noticed and uh, Nehemiah was just so heavily burdened about the state of Israel and the state of Jerusalem after the exile well maybe uh, this guy has gone home and maybe when he comes home he's all excited about it and then he looks in Jerusalem is just shambles the temple is a pile of rubble that looks like a mountain of uh, debris and he looks around at the farms he looks at the vineyards he looks at the flocks where the sheep were the pastures and they're all so so very very terrible and maybe all of this hits him. Why have you brought us back into this mess, O oh Lord? Please hear me. And time goes by and very little seems to change. 
Remember, it took them 16 years to rebuild the temple. 16 years. Now, depending on how old you are, 16 years may or may not be a long time. If you're four, then you'll only be 20 in 16 years. But if you are 80, how old would you be in 16 years? I mean, it, the perspective makes a big difference here. And so the psalmist even talks about how it seems like his life is going away like uh, the smoke. And maybe when he looks at this, he goes, Why am I having to live in this time under the judgment of God when I didn't do any of this? You know, Daniel probably could have said the same thing. Why is this happening to me? I was faithful to the Lord, and I've been faithful to the Lord. Sometimes it happens, and that's where the Lord leads us. Living in a nation, the midst of a nation of people under God's judgment. By the way, you and I might know that as more of a reality before long. I'm not sure that we're not already under the judgment of God. And I don't know how severe it'll be. I don't know how long it'll last. But I sure do pray that our nation repents. Don't you? Because we've got to be faithful in the midst of it. So let's read starting in verse 1. Hear my prayer, O Lord, and let my uh, cry come to you. Do not hide your face from me in the day of my trouble. Feels like that sometimes, doesn't it? Incline your ear to me, and in the day that I call, answer me speedily or fast or immediately or quickly. Verse 3, for my days are consumed like smoke, and my bones are burned like a hearth. My heart is stricken and withered like grass, so that I forget to eat my bread. Maybe he just lost his appetite, didn't care anymore. Maybe it's something like that. Um, verse 5, because of the sound of my groaning, my bones cling to my skin. That's pretty picturesque. And I am like a pelican of the wilderness. I'm like an owl of the desert. And uh, I lie awake and I am like a sparrow alone. There's the key word there. Alone on the housetop. My enemies reproach me all day long. And those who deride me swear an oath. They're committed, in other words. They swear an oath against me. For I have eaten ashes like bread and mingled my drink with weeping. Because of your indignation... And your wrath. So something was wrong, but it doesn't say exactly what it was. For you have lifted me up and cast me away. Verse 11. My days are like a shadow that lengthens, and I wither away like the grass. Okay, anybody depressed yet? That's uplifting, isn't it? Well, we need to know about those kind of times. And the Psalms are written in there as well as other stories because we see the heroes of the Bible in their high points, in their glory days. But we also see them when they're not so glorious and things are not so great. And in the Psalms, you in particular, you see every emotion possible. And I think that's in there because sometimes we get the idea that if I'll just get saved, everything will be great. If I'll just get saved, I won't have any more problems. Some people kind of 
present that. If I'll just have enough faith, everything will fall into place. Well, it doesn't always work that way. Sometimes we do walk through the valley of the shadow of death. And sometimes we do fear evil because we forget that the Lord is with us. And we forget that his rod and his staff, which are not always pleasant, that should be a comfort to us because we know that he is walking with us and we're not destined to be stuck in the valley. We're going through it. As Mark Lowry used to say, his favorite verse in the Bible was, and it came to pass. It didn't come to stay, it came to pass. But while you are in it, it sure can be rough. And so um, I think about this poor guy. And uh, I wonder if God answered his prayer while he was alive. Uh, it seems as though while he is writing this, he's worried about that, doesn't it? He's worried about whether he's going to live to see God restore everything. Well, we know in heaven all of that will be restored. But, man, this is tough, tough stuff. But you know what? There are people all around you, maybe even here tonight, who could feel exactly, they could write this psalm. They're hurting. They may smile. They may say, God bless you. They may say when you ask them how you doing, oh, I'm good, I'm good, or I'm great even. But they're crumbling on the inside, and it's dark in their mind. And they wonder why God has them in this place where they are, and they don't see any way out. It looks like it's going to last longer than they will. Have you ever maybe felt like that? You don't have to answer. But times are tough. Anxiety is high. And despair is running rampant in the days in which we live. And why does it happen? Why is it happening in our society? I mean, our society, as we've, we've said so many times, we don't have much to complain about. We are so blessed. But it also seems like, too, our problems are getting worse and they're getting deeper. And people are in despair and people are hurting. And you think about suicides and you think about the drug overdoses. You don't uh, watch the news without hearing about something like that. Crime and injustice. All kinds of things that are going on. And we've got to live in all of this. And our kids are being raised in all of this. And our grandkids as well. And what is life going to be like uh, for them? And so uh, see if you don't identify with some of these things. Maybe you can personally. Just because it wasn't uh, something that this psalmist, as he writes this, was going through because of his sin. But maybe you have. Maybe you've had sin in your life. You got away from the Lord and these same things hit you. And maybe all of us can identify. It seems like these things are really hitting people now, even Christian people, as our nation goes through these uh, times of wickedness. So uh, the sad consequences of rejecting the word of God. And there's no doubt that America as a whole, as a nation, has done that. And we've ignored the warnings. So what's the first thing that he mentions here? And that is, you can write down the word weakness. Weakness. It's when your strength is gone. You ever felt like that? You ever been so sick it was hard to get up or get out of bed or put on your clothes or get going? Some of you have been through chemotherapy. I hope I never have to do anything like that but I've walked with people some of you through those kind of things and it's so so tough I remember Carl Kerrigan saying one time when he was preaching to us he said if you get up and you get dressed one thing you can say is cancer not today not today it's that day when you can't get up 
It's that day when you can't get yourself dressed and ready. It's when you can't eat. It's when you can't walk into the kitchen. It's, it's those kind. That's when you know that you're in trouble. Well, isn't that what he is saying here? When you uh, look at these verses that are taken, that, that point one comes from, my heart is stricken and withered like grass. That doesn't sound good. That doesn't sound vibrant. That doesn't sound joyful. That doesn't sound like he's living his best life now, does it? I mean, that's one of those things where we feel for this guy. He's having trouble. His strength is just about gone. Don't know exactly why, but uh, that's the way he describes it. And he said, so I forget to eat my bread. Have you ever been so burdened down and so concerned and so, uh, well, David said in Psalm 32, when he describes what life was like when he was under the chastisement of God, he said, day and night your hand was heavy upon me. Okay? I don't know exactly what this guy's situation was, but I know he must have felt something like that to the point that he didn't really care about eating. He lost his appetite. It just somebody said, you really need to eat. I've been with countless people over the years in the hospital. And here's a, a lady. Her husband is in ICU. And uh, any number of her family members, her children or church members will say, can I get you something to eat? And you know what they say just about 100% of the time? No. No. Don't feel like eating. Now, you know they need to. And I always try to encourage her, you've got to eat something. You, and, and my standard line is, whenever he comes home from the hospital trying to give him hope, you don't need to be sick and you don't need to be weak. You need to keep up your strength. And most of the time at that point, well, I, I think I could eat a little something. But the problem is it's mental. It's not their digestive system. It's mental. It's emotional. They don't want to eat. It doesn't seem important. In fact, sometimes when you're in the hospital with someone who's very sick, it almost seems disrespectful to go get something to eat, doesn't it? You want to be there. You want to be right there in case they need you or there's news or something that happens. Well, whatever's going on with this guy, he is losing his appetite. And because of that, he's weak. There may be some heart failure involved. There may be just emotional distress and all of that, the lack of eating, all of that kind of stuff is going to come down to one thing, weakness. And maybe he's come back home to Israel. Maybe he's on the old family farm and maybe he's trying to repair a gate or put up a door on the barn. Or maybe he's trying to do something like that and he just runs out of breath. He's tired. He feels faint. He feels dizzy. He just can't seem to do it. And when that happens, he's got to sit down or he's got to go inside. He's got to have some water. He's got to do that. And uh, it just puts him in further despair. I can't do the things I need to do. I can't do the things that I used to do. Well, I know but with my dad before he died. When he was up to the age of 83, I mean, he was still going up in trees with a chainsaw and cutting stuff down, going up on the roof and all of that kind of stuff. But after about the age of 83, things started kind of going downhill and he would get really weak. And boy, it was painful to watch him just get up or try to get up out of a chair. And there was one time I was getting ready to go see him and he said, yeah, I've got to change the oil in my mower and I've got to sharpen the blades. Well, Dad, wait till I get there. Well, he, he never waits. And uh, he did it. 
said, Dad, you can hardly walk across the room. He said, oh, but I can sit on a mower for hours. Well, how did you change the oil? How did you do all of that? And he took me out to his shop and he showed me. You couldn't believe the ropes and the pulleys and had a winch hooked up so he could and raise it up and he could get underneath there and sit in a chair and have it to where he could sharpen the blades or uh, you know, try to change the oil. I'm still not exactly sure how he did it, but that's just the kind of person that he was. And you know what really bothered him? Because as he got older and weaker, he couldn't take care of things around his place. He couldn't take care of things around the house or he had 10 acres. He couldn't keep it like he wanted it and that kind of thing. And uh, his mailbox was had a long, long driveway and uh, he, I saw a folding chair sitting about halfway. I said, what is that for? And he said, that's as far as I can walk before I need to just sit down and rest. And uh, is he going to ask anybody else to get his mail? No, he's going to do it. He'll just sit down and rest and then get up and go the rest of the way. Broke my heart to see him like that, but not near as much as it broke his heart. He was used to doing that. Do you see that a little bit with this psalmist in, in that verse? I don't feel like eating. My heart is weak. I don't have any strength. There's weakness that comes there. I find that when we are under the chastisement of God, it seems to affect us not only emotionally, not only spiritually, but again, referencing Psalm 32, it affects us physically as well. It's a hard thing to be under the chastisement of God, even in this case when it's just the nation that's under that chastisement and uh, he's not responsible for it, but he certainly suffers with his family, with his kinfolk, with his fellow Israelis in all of this. So this is a tough time physically, a tough time emotionally, and certainly a tough time spiritually that's what you can expect to see i think in our own nation as time goes by number two the word isolation comes to mind because when i read uh, there in verse six he mentions these birds and um they seem to be kind of out of place a pelican in the wilderness an owl in the desert and a sparrow on the roof. And I think the thing that he really wants us to see is you can kind of circle that word alone. That word alone. He feels alone. And I don't know why. Maybe his uh, best friend and his family members, maybe they died on their way to Babylon. Maybe they died while they were in Babylon. Maybe they were killed when they came back uh, trying to get into the land. Maybe they had heart attacks. Maybe they... Uh, starved to death I don't know I don't know but that word alone just kind of jumps out at me have you ever really 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 truly been or felt alone now if you're a believer you may have felt it but that's all it is it's a feeling it's not true because the Lord is always with you and your brothers and sisters in Christ are always with you and we ought to be thankful for that but he just kind of describes here this uh, sparrow alone on a housetop. And I don't know. That doesn't sound good. Uh, I wrote down here. Uh, he feels out of place. No place feels like home. No place feels comfortable. No place feels like uh, it's where he's supposed to be. He's always kind of like a fish out of water. As we say. Just a fish out of water. Doesn't really fit. Doesn't really belong. What is he? Is he a Jew? Well yeah he is. 
But does he feel very Jewish after all those years in Babylon? Maybe not. Maybe not. Maybe he had such high hopes of coming back home, and when he comes in, it's just like they're all shattered. All shattered. Do you remember that song that said, Are you tired of chasing pretty rainbows? Are you tired of spinning round and round? You know, remember all of that? Wrap up all your shattered dreams in this life and at the feet of Jesus lay them down. Maybe all of his dreams are shattered. Maybe nothing seems to make sense. Maybe it's all just, just so overwhelming it's almost dizzying on all of that and he, doesn't, it, it, he just doesn't fit in. Nothing's the same. Everything's changed. People have changed. The uh, landmarks have changed. The buildings have changed. All of the things that they used to farm, it's all changed. Everything is completely different. And so when I think about an owl in the desert, a pelican in the wilderness, or a sparrow on a rooftop, I think, uh, rooftop, I think about just being isolated, alone. Uh, I think of desolation and uh, just... just you know, uh, what's a good word that you would think of for that? Uh, just in despair, maybe, because of that. Nobody to encourage, nobody to help, nothing like that at all. And uh, I think as a nation goes through judgment, I think one of the things that we'll have to watch out for is just the feeling of isolation or just flat out isolating ourselves. Persecution comes, it's just easy not to gather as a church but we need each other at uh, times like that when times are really hard and the government seems to be against us that's the time we need each other because Hebrews 10 25 tells us not to forsake the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some is but then it says something strange all the more as you see the day approaching. And I think the idea there that he is writing is we need each other. and We need to see each other and we need to encourage one another. We need to pray for each other. We need to be in contact with one another and not just live a life of isolation. You're not going to survive very well, very well with that. Number three, if we look at the next set of verses, the word shame comes to mind. So what do you think he's feeling when his enemies are taunting him all the time. What do you think it feels like when you never really get a sense or a grasp on victory? You never really get it all together to where you have a firm footing. And I get the idea that with this poor man, he's uh, just having all kinds of trouble in here. Uh, he feels very visible and exposed. Have you ever noticed how when people fall into sin... And um, it's a shameful sin. They feel like everywhere they go and everybody they talk to and uh, all of that, that people that they know, they know. And you almost feel like you're walking around Walmart naked and everybody knows what you've done and what you've gone through. Well, I don't know. Uh, again, there's nothing mentioned in here about what this guy has done. But the enemy there. It's just taunting him, making fun of him, mocking him. Can you imagine in his weak state when he's trying to, uh, I mentioned maybe put up a gate or a door or something like that. And can you imagine when he can't do it? What do, what do the enemies around there say? What do the people that don't like the Jews coming back into the land say? You remember in the book of Nehemiah, there's Sam, uh, Sambalot and Tobiah. And uh, they are constantly, constantly putting Nehemiah down. Well, this guy is talking about much the same thing. Oh, ha, ha. good job, Jew. 
Way to go. Boy, you're strong, aren't you? You've got the power of God on your life and you can't even put up a puny gate. Can you imagine when that's going on over and over and over and your failures and your fears are all just broadcast and announced, visible and exposed, talked about and pointed out? You know, when you're going through something like that and you're embarrassed anyway and then you see somebody go, like that and point at you well you're sure it's about you now it may be about the person behind you or it may be something you're not seeing but it sure feels like everybody knows and everybody's talking about you that's why when you fall into sin it's hard to come back to church sometimes because you feel like everybody's judging you they know what you've done and they're shunning you even if they're not it feels like it and uh, I I see a little bit of that with uh, this guy then he says something interesting said, I'm eating uh, ashes like bread. Eating ashes like bread. What is the Jewish, ancient Jewish sign of mourning? Sackcloth and ashes. Yeah, very good. You guys are great. It's like a seminary class here. And uh, can you imagine throwing up ashes and putting them on your head? Throwing up the ashes and let them settle all around you. And anybody that can see you knows that something is wrong. Well, what if this guy has done that? If you've got ashes up here on the top of your head and it's supper time and you take your bread and you break it open, maybe you put a little butter on it or something like that, and when you uh, lean up just a little to eat it, the ashes fall off of your head and off of your face. I think that's what he's making reference to, that I'm so much in ashes and I'm so mournful over what I'm seeing. Now, again... That might be because he's on his way to Babylon. It might be because he's in Babylon and he's really, really sick and tired of all of the idolatry and all of the junk that he has to put up. He wants to go home to the land that was promised by God to Abraham. You know, the Jews have always wanted that. I listened to the president of Israel speak this morning to a joint session of Congress. And uh, he made reference to the fact that Their ancestral homeland was the land of Israel. And all of those years, 2,000 years, they yearned to be back in the land. That's why they're there today. God put that in them. It's God's land and he gave it to Abraham and he promised it to Abraham's descendants. And so they have a yearning to be back on the land and in the land. Well, that's the way he was. That's why every Passover they would say next year in Jerusalem. Can you imagine how sad that is? And so when things got really bad and he would cry out to the Lord and weep before the Lord, he's saying that the ashes that I would put on my head would fall down into my food and I'm eating ashes like bread. It's pleasant. And then he said, and whenever I pick up my glass with my iced tea in it, what happens? My tears mingle with what I'm drinking. In other words, this is a picture of sorrow and mourning and uh, sadness that covers every part of his life. He doesn't even get pleasure out of eating. No wonder he doesn't eat enough and his skin is clinging to his bones. No wonder he's weak. No wonder. But all of this is an expression of his utter sadness and the devastation that uh, he is going through. So it's a picture of Well, maybe call it this, utter humiliation. Utter humiliation. They used to be proud in their land. Maybe too proud. That's why they didn't listen to God. 
They used to be proud of what they had, had accomplished. It's a land of milk and honey out here in the desert. You know, it's interesting. Our guide in Israel, she said that uh, Moses led the children of Israel for 40 years to find the only country in the Middle East without oil. Can you imagine what the economy of Israel would be like if they had oil like Saudi Arabia or like Iran or Iraq or some of those other countries? But they don't. They found some natural gas out in the uh, Mediterranean Sea, but they really don't have any of that type of wealth. And 60% of the nation of Israel is desert. And yet it's amazing. They grow crops. They export crops. And they've made the desert bloom. They're proud of what they have done. And they'll give God the glory for it. And maybe back in these days, before the exile, before the destruction, they were proud of that temple. People came from all over the ancient world to see Solomon's temple. They were proud of that temple. They were saying, if you read through the prophets like Jeremiah and others, people were saying, well, God would never allow us to be taken captive. After all, we have the temple. And they looked at the temple kind of like a good luck charm. Well, God wants to be worshipped, and so he's not going to let anything happen. This is where we offer the sacrifices, and he needs those. You hear my sarcasm in that? And so now, what is it? A mountain of rubble. A mountain of rubble. The farms and the pastures and the gardens and the orchards and the olive groves, all grown up in weeds, maybe burned down, all destroyed. And he looks at all of that and he says, this is utter humiliation. And can you imagine some of the enemies of Israel going, where's your God now? Looks like a land of milk and honey to me. Ha ha ha. This is awesome, isn't it? Yeah. Go ahead, Jew. Figure it out. You're too weak to even hammer in a nail. I mean, you get the picture? So no wonder he's in despair. And number four, as we look down at the next set of verses, verse 10. Just emptiness. Just emptiness. And maybe he's saying his prayers in the morning. Maybe he's doing his scripture readings. Maybe he is still going to the synagogue. Maybe he's still eating kosher, doing all of that. But, well, it's like a guy went to Knott's Berry Farm. Ever been there? Right by Disneyland in California. And uh, they used to have ducks and they had roller skates on a duck. Isn't that the funniest thing that you get in your mind for a picture? And somebody asked somebody, could ducks ro roller skate? And the guy's answer was, yeah, but you could tell their heart wasn't in it. And I wonder as this guy is doing all the things he's supposed to do, but it just doesn't feel like it used to feel. It used to bring him great joy. Now it's a burden. Now it's a pain. And he's ready for all of this to change and to get back to normal. That's why he says, hear me, incline your ear to me in those first few verses and answer me speedily. We don't have much time. This is a guy that feels like he's got, you know, one foot in the grave and the other on a banana peel, so to speak. This is a guy that just not sure how much longer he's going to last. Let's read those verses. Look at verse 10. Because of your indignation and your wrath. So he knows they are under the judgment of God. It may not be personal, but it is national, national, and he's suffering for it. And then he says, now this one part is kind of personal. For you have lifted me up. Okay, stop there. That's normally a good thing. 
That's normally a great thing. The Lord has lifted me up and not let my foes triumph over me. I mean, we have verses like that in the Bible. We sing a lot of songs about that. He doesn't say that. Look, look what he says. For you have lifted me up. And what's the next phrase say? Cast me away. That gives me the picture that I was perfectly fine where I was, but you picked me up when I didn't want to be picked up, and you didn't pick me up to love on me. You didn't pick me up to do anything like that. You tossed me away. Now, did that literally happen? Probably not, if we saw it from God's perspective. But did it happen according to the psalmist? Yeah, that's what it felt like. To be plucked up out of Jerusalem, to be cast away into the pagan society of Babylon, and then to come back home and everything's in shambles. What would what, you do this for? Well, he knows. Wrath and indignation. The people of Judah did not listen to the Lord or his prophets. And so it came to the point where God said, Enough. Enough. It's irreversible now. There was a point where they were sinning and God sent a warning to them. And that warning was to give them time to repent. But when they didn't, there came a point to where God said, that's it. That does it. And so uh, that's what happened to him. He was caught up in the midst of all of it. Doesn't sound always nice and it doesn't always sound fair. But that's the way it is. For you have lifted me up and cast me away. Now look uh, what he says in verse 11. My days are like a shadow that lengthens. Hey, when the shadows start getting long, what time of day is it? Evening. Yeah. The day is almost gone. The day is almost over. This is very picturesque. My uh, days are like a shadow that lengthens. There's not very many of them left is what at least he is feeling. And he says, and I wither away like grass. When you uh, cut your grass, if you don't bag it, and the mower shoots grass, cut grass out of the chute. You know, it doesn't look so bad maybe right at first. But it doesn't take very long for the grass to turn brown, does it? And then you see all of that uh, laying all over the place. And it sometimes looks kind of nasty. And, you know, you go, oh, man, I, I should have bagged it or something like that. Get the picture? The psalmist says, I'm kind of like that cut grass. I'm feeling like I'm about ready just to shrivel up and ready to uh, die, basically. And so he ends up this particular section. Now, the next verse and the next section of Scripture is going to be real encouraging because he doesn't lose his faith, thank the Lord for that. But he's expressing now how he feels even in his walk with God. But he has to change his tune real quick after this because he knows... This is the way I feel, but how I feel is not necessarily how it is. Boy, boy, I wish we could grasp that as believers. How you feel is not necessarily how it is. How you feel is not necessarily how it is. Okay? And so uh, it's going to get a little more encouraging as we move through all of this and... Uh, we're going to see what he thinks about God. We know what he thinks about himself. Now we're going to see what he thinks about God. And even in the midst of this spiritual famine, spiritual famine, he has reasons to uh, give glory to the Lord. Well, let's uh, finish up. Isaiah 61 verse 3 says, To grant to those who mourn in Zion, 
Well, that sounds like our friend here in this psalm. To grant to those who mourn in Zion to give them a beautiful headdress, kind of like a tiara or a crown or a nice hat, whatever your taste might be, instead of ashes. Now, remember we said this guy evidently had ashes of mourning on there. So uh, if you were to get this guy, hey, clean those ashes off and put on your, you know, fancy hat. No, I can't do that. But when he's happy, he can. And so what is this saying in Isaiah? God's going to take his people and make them joyful again. And he is going to do this for those that mourn in Zion. That's our psalmist in Psalm 102. And he's going to give them a beautiful headdress uh, instead of ashes. And then he says, goes on, it gets better. And the oil of gladness instead of mourning. Well, anybody would trade that. If the Lord would anoint your head with oil and anoint you as his servant or even as a king, whatever it might be, that's a whole lot better than having an ash heap on top of your head because everything is terrible. People tend to rejoice at coronations, don't they? They don't do that so much at funerals. And so the oil of gladness instead of mourning. And then he says, the garment of praise instead of, the King James says, the Spirit of heaviness and the New King James, or uh, I can't remember what translation, this may be uh, ESV, um, gives us uh, this picture. A garment of praise instead of a faint spirit. I just can't do it. And going back to this guy that where he goes, he knows he needs to eat, but it doesn't taste good. He doesn't really want it. He doesn't really feel like it. You ever been like that in praise to the Lord? He's worthy of our praise, and it's always a good time to praise the Lord. But there are just sometimes you just can't bring yourself to do it. And the Lord promises there's going to be a day when you're going to have a garment of praise. You'll be clothed in praise instead of that faint spirit. And then he tells us the purpose of all of that. Why is he going to do all of that? Here it is. That they may be called oaks of righteousness the planting of the lord why another purpose that he might be glorified and so when we look at uh, this psalmist and we uh, see sometimes a little bit of a mirror whenever we look in the bible we've all had times where we've been like that or at least similar to it or maybe even headed that direction and how much glory do you give for the Lord, give to the Lord when that's happening? Uh, probably not much. Probably not much. But you say, aren't we supposed to give glory to God? Yes. But you also notice when we read that passage in Isaiah, but God himself will take care of that. One of these days, you're not going to have any problem at all praising the Lord. And it might even be while you're here on earth. And it certainly will be that way when you get in heaven. And the bottom line is, even as we suffer, we are to give glory to the Lord. And so uh, think about all of that and thank the Lord that he included stuff like this in the Bible because we can identify with this guy and this guy can identify with us. And even greater, the Lord knows all of us living and dead, whether we are faithful or unfaithful, he knows all of us. And he's the one that started a good work in us. And Paul says he will complete it in the day of Christ Jesus. So just hold on. You're not stuck. It's going to get better. God has better days ahead for people like you 
and people like me, as sinful as we might be. And even though our nation may be collapsing all around us, that's not the whole story. He is building his church and he is building you up. So rejoice in the Lord. Better days are ahead and better days are coming. If not in this life, in the one to come. And uh, you will not be disappointed one bit when you get to heaven. Okay? Let's pray together. Father, when I think about what this guy's going through, I don't know everything. You didn't tell us everything about him. But we get enough. And uh, maybe we felt that way or had some of those thoughts or uh, considered all of that. Help us, help us to put those things away and not to be moping around but to remember we're children of God, we're children of the King, to know that you live within us, to know that you give us your power and your strength for every situation and for every day. And we uh, look forward to that day when we put on a garment of praise instead of the spirit of, of faintness and weakness like that psalmist described in there. And uh, we look forward to all of that, Lord, because you always keep your promises. You always keep your word and always help us to realize there is a better day coming. Keep looking up. Jesus is coming soon. And I pray, Lord, that we would be ready and I pray that we would be joyful when that time comes. And even if uh, he doesn't come in our lifetime, Lord, I pray that we would be able to die with joy and to die with hope. And to die with a positive word on our lips. And we know, Lord, that chances are we won't do that if it's left up to us. But if you would let us finish well, we would sure be grateful to you for that. And this we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.